Hello, and welcome to Next Gen Minds, the informal but informative weekly Sunday podcast made for students by students. I'm your host, Maddie Clark, and together we'll start a much needed conversation with students, experts, and other special guests about mental health. We'll bust some myths, find out what are the best ways to manage our well-being, and if all things fail, we'll simply manifest our way to sanity. Next Gen Minds is part of an important initiative to draw attention to the mental health crisis unfolding amongst the future generation and to eradicate the stigma and taboo of talking about mental health. If you feel that any areas or topics discussed affect you or you're simply feeling lost or overwhelmed, head to the Next Gen University's website for resources on how to cope, including the 30-day Mental Reset Challenge. This challenge includes short three-minute videos to help equip you with a toolkit of useful coping mechanisms and ways to strengthen your well-being. So, without further ado, let's start talking and make a change. Hello, today I am joined by Joe Lochran, the director of Time to Change, which is a social movement that looks at how to reduce the stigma around mental health and also the discrimination that people with mental health face. Um, so Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you about mental health and the stigma that surrounds it and also, or more importantly, how to start the conversation about mental health, especially with your loved ones and your friends, and why is it so hard to actually get the conversation rolling. But before we delve into all of that, I just wanted to ask you if you could maybe tell everyone a bit more about Time to Change and what its mission is and what mo really motivated you to start the campaign. Okay, so we um, have been going for uh, almost 15 years now. So we began in 2007 um, and the two mental health charities, Mind and Rethink Mental Illness, came together um, because what they were finding was that people who they were supporting were telling them that often the symptoms of um, uh, the mental health problem that they might be experiencing was nothing compared to the impact on them on a day-to-day -day basis of stigma and discrimination of others, of people around them, whether that be in their family, their friendship groups, at work, or in their area of study. And so there was a real massive um, impetus on the part of both Mind and Rethink Mental Illness to try to see what we could do to challenge that stigma and discrimination. A Time for Change did a survey that showed there has been a massive improvement since, like you said, you started 15 years ago. Um, and the survey shown there are now 57% of people that think it's actually easier to talk about their mental health. But then there's a the flip side of that, that two thirds of people still feel ashamed or isolated because of their mental health problem. So why do you think there's still this stigma surrounding mental health despite a huge increase in awareness and openness? Well, I mean, it takes an awful long time to, to change ingrained attitudes and behaviours. Um, so what we've done over those um, uh, sort of 15 years is that we've worked with the Institute of Psychiatry, um, Psychology and Neuroscience. And what they've done is they have evaluated the impact of uh, mental health uh, in terms of attitudes, knowledge and behaviour. 
So what we can absolutely say is that since we've been running, we've seen a 50, uh, almost 15% improvement, so it's about 12.7% to be precise, improvement in people's attitudes towards those of us with mental health problems. And that equates to about 5.4 million people who've got improved attitudes. What we always talk about is the fact that this is a change in a generation, which is why at Time to Change we've done a whole sort of multifaceted programme of work to challenge stigma and discrimination. So we work with young people, we work with employers, we work out in the community, we do the sort of back office stuff that I sometimes talk about in terms of challenging, stigmatising attitudes and behaviours in uh, relation to uh, newspaper reporting or media reporting generally, um, so that we're really making sure that at every level we're looking to challenge stigma and discrimination. And there are two really important things in this, is that, is that what we want to do is we want to kind of create... Um, we want to create a norm that says that it's okay if you experience mental health problems to talk about them. And in order to do that, we need to really work at changing the knowledge, attitudes and behaviours of everybody that sits around that individual. So we've really worked hard at trying to understand from people with personal experience mental health problems, where are you experiencing this? Where is it most impacting on your lives? And then looking to see what we can do to kind of to challenge that behaviour um, uh, in society, in their workplace, in individuals and families. So it's 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 really it's it's complex, and that's why it takes a long time for these things to change. My great hope is that the work that we've done in secondary schools up to now will mean that as 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 young, as this generation of young people, um, you know, can become take their first job, for instance that they'll be looking for employers who've got a really, really good track record on taking care of staff, of making sure that they have mentally healthy workplaces. And that that's one of the things that they'll kind of be demanding when they get out into um, the world of employment. And then as they grow older <laughs> and progress in their careers, whatever they choose to do, they'll also be the people who model that really, really good behavior that, that, that says, actually, I can't run my organisation or I can't run my school or my university or I don't want to have my friends and family have stigmatising attitudes. I'm going to be the one that challenges that when I see it or hear it or experience it for myself. The future generations has this huge responsibility because if we can make a change and then take that forward, it will hopefully become the norm to talk about mental health and reduce the stigma surrounding it. In terms of stigma that people face in their day-to-day lives, are there any mental health problems that face significantly more stigma or discrimination than others? Um, And in your research, did you find any commonalities between the stigma that those with mental health problems have to withstand? Okay, so that's a really interesting question because it's quite complex to answer. When we began, I think it was fair to say that we didn't really look at, um, we didn't look at conditions, we didn't look at diagnoses. When we encouraged people to join our social movement, we weren't really interested in, 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 in the kind of diagnosis that they might have had. What we were really interested in was the impact that, that stigma and discrimination had on their lives. And there was a really deliberate reason for that. So we chose to do a kind of place-based um, uh, program of work that, that situated the problem in society, the problem outside of the individual with personal experience and trying to kind of make that change. And all of that is done because we've done really, really robust insights research. So 
at no point ever have we gone, hmm, I think we might do a little bit of something over here. It's always been based on where people have told us they're experiencing the most impact. So that's the, the, the first thing. Um, the, the second is that we did that so that we could bring as many people as possible up to a common a common um, goal, really, a common sort of um, a, a, a starting point. So in other words, I often think about those first those first years as being very much around building the foundation upon which we could then decide were there particular diagnoses or were there particular places or were there particular um, uh, audiences or individuals who we needed to concentrate on in a more um, deliberate and targeted way. So the work that we've done in the last um, uh, sort of 18 months to two years, we've been looking at what's the next thing that really needs addressing in stigma and discrimination. And what we have found from the research that we've done is that we know that people who are severely impacted by stigma and discrimination, uh, who, who, are still, um, who still haven't experienced the benefits of all of the work that we and others have done over the last 15 years, include people with diagnosis of things like schizophrenia, psychosis, um, personality disorder, for example. We also looked at the fact that we really need to do some very targeted work with um, individuals from particular, um, uh, particular community groups um, and those people also who were experiencing um, uh, who, you know, deprivation. So that intersectionality is also really, really important. So what we've done is we've brought everybody up to a level and now we're in a position where we would be able to, if we had funding, um, to, then, to then sort of segment that even further to be able to look at some of those audiences that perhaps haven't benefited from some of the work that we've done um, in the last 15 years. It's really interesting that you kind of mentioned the, the, the mental health problems like schizophrenia or psychosis that I think like as a young person I'm very fortunate that like I have platforms such as Instagram, TikTok um, and like Snapchat that are very open where you have like like you said like role models um, be that influencers or journalists who are open about talking about like common not common but um, mental health problems that are um, more common that we see like maybe depression, anxiety not that that is belittling them but the, the fact that I'm very fortunate that I have that platform and I have awareness of that. But up until I was doing this podcast, I didn't really have that much awareness about schizophrenia and um, psychosis. And I think the only insight that I have on them is from like movies or um, TV shows where they're kind of portrayed almost as violent, like the, the it's like criminal behavior. And does that sort of, I don't know, in your research that you've done, does that influence how people um, maybe discriminate against those who have less common there's less common uh, mental health problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so so the work that we've done over the last 15 years is that they've very much taken account of where do people find their facts. Um, and that first four years of work that we did was all about understanding the myths that people held around common, let's call them, mental health problems, and trying to undo some of those myths. And so in the same way that we would need to do that with something like schizophrenia or bipolar, again, we need to be able to understand where are, where are our target audience? If we want to influence and change the attitudes and, and behavior of a particular group of people in society, the first thing we need to understand is where are those people right now in terms of their knowledge and understanding? 
where are they taking their, that knowledge from? And, and is that a reliable source? And if people have got myths and misunderstandings around a particular condition, um, we need to know that because then we need to find ways to address that, to replace myths with facts. So, so again, you're absolutely right. I mean, we did a, the first four years of work that we did at Time to Change included a piece of work working with journalists and with TV producers. Um, to make sure that we were um, representing mental illness in a way that really reflected the reality of it, rather than the kind of sensationalization that we sometimes get through newspaper, I keep saying newspaper, but media reporting um, uh, and, and movies. Because if that's the only exposure that somebody has to a particular topic area, there's no real reason for people to question that or to go off and find more information. So being able to report that responsibly was a really important part of, of what we did. Um, and so it would be exactly the same with, um, with any sort of you know, condition that we might move on to um, in the future. And in terms of what Time for Change does, I know you have so many campaigns going on at the moment. I mean, you have your corner campaign, Ask Twice. And, and what I love about time for change is that you actually encourage students and workplaces to take it upon themselves to create their own campaigns so I mean there are all these things that you try to do to destigmatize mental health but I wanted to focus on one that's actually happened fairly recently on the 4th of Feb and that is time to talk day um, so why is time to talk day important and why did you choose only one day rather than perhaps maybe a week or a month um, so, so Time to Talk Day began for us about, I think this, is our, this was our eighth year, um, and, and the reason we wanted to do that was we wanted to encourage people to have a conversation. Um, and I think, I think it's important um, in many ways to stress the fact that um, we're not saying to people, we want you to save up all your conversations for one day and then to have them all on those one day. But it's a really, really good platform to kind of start the conversation, to remind people of just how important conversations on that day, but in fact, conversations for the rest of the year are for people. Um, we know for, for a lot of people, they'll experience um, mental health problems and they may well be experiencing it in isolation and alone and be afraid to talk about it. But the issue around time to talk day and having conversations is it's as important, I think, for us to be open to the topic of conversation uh, in relation to mental health, to be open to the topic of mental health, that it is for actually us to ask people to talk about their own experience. So I need to be able to know that if I want to talk about my experience, um, uh, depression, that I'm going to be able to do so in a safe place, that I know that my neighbour or my work colleague or my friend or a member of my family will be non-judgmental and will be willing to hear what I have to say, to listen to what I have to say and not fix the problem and not be an expert because that's not actually what I'm asking them to do. So it's as important for this day to remind people of how to listen well and be on the receiving end of some of those conversations as it is to encourage us all to feel that we have the right to talk about our personal experience without judgment and being treated negatively.
It's really interesting that you talked about being able to listen because I think for a lot of people it can be quite daunting to start the conversation because you don't know what to say or how you're going to be able to help and you're afraid that you might say the wrong thing and that by starting this conversation you're going to be, I don't know, diving into this scary topic of mental health and that it's going to evolve into this really serious conversation where you have to whip out your therapist's notepad and become a therapist for your friend when actually in reality it's so simple and it doesn't have to be so scary because you don't have to have the solutions to everything you just have to be someone there ready to listen it's absolutely and i think that we i think that we can really massively underestimate the power of having somebody to talk to and to hear what you have to say and sometimes it's around you know i often think about it in terms of you know does it fix the problem well no actually it doesn't um is it going to immediately make that person feel better? Well, no, probably not. But over time, the ability to know you've got somebody to talk to, and and again, we, we sometimes overestimate or underestimate the, the reaching out to people. So again, as you say, it doesn't have to be a kind of sit-down conversation or a kind of, okay, I've got to make time now for this conversation because it's going to happen in the next 20 minutes. When I've been really, really struggling, one of the things that's that's been really incredibly comforting to me is if somebody sends me a quick text or a quick, quick um, message, and I may not get back to them immediately, but I know that if I need to, they would be there. And even if I don't feel like I'm ever going to reach out to them, knowing that somebody was thinking about what I'm going through at that particular time is incredibly comforting. And we know that from, from talking to people that that's a kind of quite a common response. Um, so let's not underestimate the power of talking. Let's not underestimate the power of being open to the topic of conversation. And let's not un underestimate the fact that actually talking about this could be the first time that somebody's been able to bring their whole selves to work, to college, to university, to the party. It's part of us all, and we have the right to be able to kind of, you know, talk about that when it's right for us, um, and hope that we have a really good, um, uh, a really good response to that. Uh, and that's what we're trying to encourage other people to do. So think about what your response would be. I love the, I love the phrase that you said, "bring your whole self to the party." And I think it's it's hard it's really hard to do that because it's almost like we we don't want to bring our whole selves because we don't want to feel maybe sometimes like a burden when we're talking about things and we want to leave the kind of the bad stuff in the back of the storage room and we just kind of put that to the side and only bring the part of us that we want people to see and we think that people are going to want to hear but let's say you do start the conversation you do say how are you and they and someone it's very typically British to do this is kind of brush it off, make a joke or just go, how are you? Good. Okay. Brilliant. Let's move on with the conversation. Um, what would you recommend people trying to do if they think that people are a bit more walled up or don't immediately open up to how they're feeling? Yeah. I mean, we ran a campaign in, in um, uh, we do an annual campaign for this last five years, which you referred to a bit earlier, um, Ask Twice. So one of the pieces of research that we um, did, our insights research said, and again, you're right, it's very, very, very British, where we often say to somebody, almost as a greeting, almost as a, as a replacement for hello, we go, how are you doing? And then we moved on, because we're not really that interested in the answer. But actually, if we really do, if we are worried about somebody, um, you know, we would absolutely recommend to ask again, because what that shows is that um, one, you've clocked that something might not be okay for that individual. 
Two, you're showing that you are really interested in genuinely what, what's going on for them. And it signals to somebody who's hearing that, that this is now okay for me to then say, actually, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not doing okay at the moment. And that is the beginning of a conversation. Now, I think the other thing that we've got to remember is that sometimes we may begin that conversation and, and it's not the right time. And it may not be the right time for the recipient or it may not be the right time for the person who needs to talk about something. So don't, I think the, the other thing is, don't, you know, don't be afraid to sort of say, okay, look, why don't we set the time, you know, if now is not convenient, you know, don't be afraid of the fact that you've got to do it. As I was saying earlier, the fact that somebody has, knows you've clocked it and that you're interested in what's going on for them and that you've made a time for them may be sufficient. And that's, a really important you know thing to you know message i think to, to leave with people the other thing that i really wanted to emphasize about the time to talk day stuff and and this year's theme so this year's theme was the power of small and it was really all about trying to encourage people to understand how the really small things that we often feel are completely insignificant we have no idea that if we send a text it's going to make any difference at all and sometimes we'll do things and we don't see the, that we don't see the power of that play out because somebody will receive that while they're at home or they may never reach out to you. So you have no idea whether the impact of you sending a small text, you have no idea whether that's had an impact. But I think that it's really important to remember that all of those things do make a difference to people. So continue to do them really encouraging those kind of small acts that mean an enormous amount to somebody who's on the, the receiving end of that. It's needed even more now than ever, because I mean, especially in lockdown, we're all isolated to a certain extent. I know I'm very lucky in that I live in a stable, arguably sane nuclear family. Um, whilst I know that there are others who aren't as fortunate as I am and live in maybe a small flat in London by themselves. So obviously our loneliness is of course relative, but we're all isolated to a certain degree and those small acts of like reminding someone that they're not alone it just provides this support net that is there that doesn't always have to be in use but for them to know that that when they're falling it will be there to catch them and it's vice versa by by kind of creating that safety net is also for you to use as well because in checking up on people they're more likely to also check up on you but also there's a balance. I think it, it's quite easy, especially if you have feelings or issues you perhaps aren't ready to confront or you don't want to address yet. And so it's easy to take on a lot of other people's anxieties or problems. And I think there's a balance between looking after yourself and looking after those around you. So I just wanted to ask you, how do you strike that balance? I think really, really, really key. So um, particularly if you're taking care of somebody else, um, uh, it's really, really important that you also have your own support structure around you. Um, uh, and that can be other people, but it can also be other things that you do. So for me, um, I uh, take a great deal of solace in being outside. Um, I love going for walks. Um, I spent I spent all of the kind of like lockdown going on walks near us. So there's some beautiful sort of countryside around us, and and being really cognizant of what was going on around me. So if I was going out pretty much every day for a walk, it's amazing the tiny things that you pick up that change in nature. And that was really 
that was just so heart heartening for me. It really made me feel much, much better about what was going on around me that was completely out of my control. But I could take control of doing some of those things. And I think that that sense, especially in this last year, it's been incredibly difficult for so, so many people that being able to have a little bit of control in what goes on for you is, is, is really important. For lots of other people I talk about, I've got colleagues at work who have been, every single day they've been up, they've been doing yoga. I am not supple, but they they love it. And it's it's one time, it's one thing. And I think there's, so I think there's lots of things that we can do around self-care, whether we're looking out for other people or not. I think we talk a lot about this in Time to Change, where we say, um, there's an expression that we use, which is, you know, fit your own oxygen mask before you help anybody else. And if you've ever been on a plane, you recognize immediately what that means. If we're looking after somebody else, we absolutely need to make sure that we have all of the kind of We've got enough fuel in our tank to be able to support both ourselves and the person um, that we are also supporting as well. I completely relate to you with yoga. My friend has recently set up this weekly yoga class and it is fabulous, but I do have to say... I am a 19-year-old with an 80-year-old's hip bones. I am atrocious. My downward dog looks like a downward dog having an asthma attack, but <laughs> you are so right. It is It is about finding what suits you, and there is no one-size-fits-all. So what would you recommend to people who struggle to find that time in the day to kit back and and take that time to look after themselves so for me i um i put stuff in my diary um so this morning we got up at seven and we were out the door going for a walk at 7 30 and the reason i do that is because um if i'm if i'm in the middle of a day i find it really really difficult to um justify getting out so i do it in my time first thing in the morning it's a good time to go and dip um, or i would diarize something and make sure that it that it's definitely in the diary and I think the other thing to just remember is it doesn't have to be three hours long. I think you touched on it, you know, 10 minutes, even if you just shut your eyes for 10 minutes and think positive thoughts, I don't know, whatever it is that you want to do, it can be in really, really small segments, but that that really does kickstart and really support a change in mindset and thinking and and that's really part of, uh, part of that kind of self-care. Regarding self-care and accepting that it's not only okay, but necessary to check in with yourself. Um, in a recent podcast I did with two male first-year students, um, they touched on something that I think is really important and that that's men really struggle to open up. Um, so what advice would you give someone who thinks a friend is going through something, um, it can be male or female, but especially if they're a male and don't want to open up? I mean, of course, if someone's not ready to talk about what they're feeling or anything they're going through, you have to respect that. But what would you say to those people who do want to be there for a friend um, who they're worried about but are not ready to open up and talk? What I would say is, and, and again, we, we this last five year, what, years, one of our target audience has been men because we know how difficult it is for men to um, open up and, and to talk about things. And and really, what again, we did lots of insights research into this. And, and when we um, when we were doing some of the kind of focus groups with men, one of the things that they um, said to us was uh, in the in the focus groups was, oh no no no, when you talk about mental health. Uh, you can literally see people sit like this, so they've crossed their arms and they sit back like, oh no, I don't know anybody who's 
experiencing mental health problems. Um, and so uh, you think, okay, that's, that's quite a difficult one. When we then talk to them about, but if your friend was struggling, you know, would you want to be there to support them? And there was this overwhelming response, which was pretty much 99% of the people who were in this focus group said, well, yeah, of course I would. So we talked a lot over the last five years about that kind of brotherhood and about that's where the, the whole concept of being in your mate's corner came from. And sometimes it's about modeling the fact that you are open to having that conversation and thinking about carefully about banter and thinking carefully about what what am I saying, what am I doing that might either encourage my friend to be able to talk to me about this or create a barrier to my friend being able to talk to me about this. Um, and so we would really, really encourage uh, men to continue to reach out, to continue to ask twice, to continue to model behaviour that says, you know what, I'm not here to fix it, but I am here to hear and to listen to what you've got to say and trying to figure out a way that they can kind of, you know, find a solution, whether that be um, getting secondary help or, or, or not, uh, and, but being able to do that together in the way that you would do um, for your mates. So that's that's really what we would encourage people to do. Mm. I'm just saying like how are you it doesn't mean that you're going to be the one to fix everything but without starting the conversation I think I think people just don't know how to express their feelings I think it's really hard to put into words like what is going on and like am I feeling anxious depressed sad happy like to pinpoint what exactly is going wrong I mean the amount of times my mum's probably walked into my room and I've been sat there bawling my eyes out and she's like what's wrong and I'm like I just don't know um it's really hard to actually into words like emotions because it's all in your head it's like running around and it becomes a spiral by but by speaking about it it provides an outlet to not not like to dissect um what's going on but just kind of start to understand what you're feeling and, and one of my friends actually will he had this really interesting idea and um that was rather than asking like how are you was instead to say what are you feeling because how are you it almost becomes an impulse. The reflexes just say good, um, whilst what are you feeling really requires more reflection. Um, and what, what do you think? I think, you're, I think that's spot on. I mean, I, I think we, we don't have, we often don't have the language um, to, to express how we think and how we feel about um, our emotions because we're not necessarily encouraged to do that as, you know, as we, as we grow up. And particularly if you're a male, you know, even now, I think things are changing, but particularly for men, you know, we're often, uh, we often sort of encourage, we don't necessarily encourage men to express how they're feeling. And so that makes it even, even worse. So you, you can't find a language. You don't know how to articulate what you feel. You don't know whether or not, if you do articulate what you feel, somebody's going to judge you negatively. Um, so the whole series of things that we kind of have to unpick for people um, and that becomes really, really difficult. And I think one of the other things is to go back to kind of, you know, what, what can somebody do in that case? And I think particularly, uh, particularly with kind of the, the male, the, the bond that, that exists between men, you know, the brotherhood that, that exists. Again, oftentimes we're like, okay, so so what do I need? How when can I have this conversation? And and and, and men particularly, without wanting to um, uh, to to sort of you know pigeonhole, but but do tend to to want to fix. Um, and so so really being able to leave that at the door, finding solutions and fixing 
is not important and really encouraging people to continue to do all the things that they would normally do until that person's ready to talk about it. So, you know, carry if, if your if your thing is to go to the pub and have a few drinks and talk about the world, life, and universe, carry on doing that. But there may well be an opportunity where you can start to talk about emotion. But it, it, it's all about that demonstrating and modeling that you're open to listen and hear what somebody has to say. Yeah, and, and by creating that space, it will also be a space that you can use later on. I mean, if you demonstrate that you're open you also create an opening that you can use when you need it later. I mean, totally spot on, really. I mean, you know, and, and, and I often talk about this in terms of my, my job. So I, I uh, you know, if you, you know, do, people say, what do you do for a living? And, um, and I'll say, well, I'm fantastically proud to be running this kind of like time to change program. It's all about challenging stigma and discrimination. Almost immediately, people, people will begin to talk to me about themselves, husband, wife, kids, yeah, about their experience of mental health and why is that it's not because I've got a really sympathetic face it's nothing to do with me at all it's to do with the fact that I have said what I do for a living so I am a very very safe space for people to be able to talk about that other topic area they know that they're not going to be judged negatively that I don't care whether or not they've got uh, you know mental health in the family because actually it, it, it means it, you know, it, is not, it is not the thing that I'm going to judge people on. And so they feel safe in being able to be open and to talk about that. And if we could create that, if we could replicate that in every interaction that we have, imagine, imagine how amazing that would be in terms of what we'd be able to talk about and what we'd be able to, uh, you know, just sort for people. And sometimes it's not about seeking medical intervention. Something, sometimes it is just about being able to express and articulate what's going on for you and how you feel. Besides on an individual level, um, I mean, this podcast is specifically for students. So what can a secondary school or university do to create that safe space that is not just tick boxing on mental health week or getting speakers in, but actually creating that culture of security and safety surrounding the conversations of mental health? It was really important that we um, took a kind of multi-level approach. So um, in the same way that we would do out in society, if you think about school settings, let's say, as uh, you know, as the universe, it was really important that we had a kind of multi-leveled approach. So we we it's easy to go in and talk to a really keen teacher or teachers about what you're trying to achieve. But what we know makes a difference is that we have to have um, buy-in at senior level and at, at senior management team. We know that we need to take, again, putting your own oxygen mask before others. We know that we have to have good policies in place to support staff if we're asking them to support students or, in fact, have conversations about mental health. Making sure that we are leading, that, that students are leading this, that it's not just something that's coming from the top, but that it's being encouraged from the top, but that actually it's delivered by students um, and by peers being able to create a space where people feel that they can talk about their personal experience and that might be within the school setting itself or bringing in external speakers people who've got personal experience who are still young but not in the um, experience that, that they're going through so in other words they're, they're, they're somewhere within their recovery where they can be reflective and talk about what it meant to them because that will resonate with 
um, people who are hearing it much better than if I go and talk about it. Um, and really making sure that you're looking at the kind of cultural context within which these conversations are happening. So everything that we do just simply doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we've got to make sure that we're doing this at multi-levels. And so if it's happening in schools, it's important that when children go home, that they can have that conversation with their parents. So there's a piece of work to be done there. We need to make sure that if it's happening in schools, that the community within which that school sits is also having those kinds of conversations and is, is open to that. Um, and, and, and if we were doing stuff in schools, we need to make sure that employers are thinking about this because those young people will move into employment at some point in their lives. So, so, that, so there's, a, there's a very specific school as a universe, but none of that stuff happens in, in a vacuum. Um, and really just making sure that that's kind of led by the top and is um, and, and has you know, multi-level within it. So specifically for universities, if, they're going to, if the top are going to encourage the bottom to, you know, meet in the middle, like a mixture between the top down and bottom up approach, what specific steps can universities take? Yeah, so there's a number of things I think that, 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 that come from that. I think there's about the, the stuff that looks at kind of policies and process, and that's one thing. So lots of the stuff that we do with employers, for example, because of course universities are employers, looks at kind of what are your policies and procedures, what training and support do you need to put in place for staff or for students? How can you how can you lead by um, example? So if you're a, we know how um, uh, how important it is and how influential it is if you've got senior leaders within any organisation or institution willing to talk about their personal experience that sets the tone for everything else. Making sure that you have um, you know, awareness days or, uh, or, or really being able to, to, to set aside places where people can go and get the support that they need. And then really trying to work with students and staff to think about, well, how can I train up people who are experiencing mental health problems, willing to kind of champion this cause and create the um, the university society that um, uh, or community that means it's okay to talk about it. And then, of course, there's all of the national peaks of activity and, and activities that are downloadable from the Time to Change website and from both Mind and Rethink. You know, making sure that people are looking at that, thinking, what can I use of this that will help raise awareness and change knowledge, attitudes, and behaviour? Yes, it's it's everyone's responsibility. I mean. It's not just the university, but also like the students. I mean, you have, like you said, incredible resources on the website um, that can help students create campaigns and raise awareness, not even just students, but communities and secondary schools. Um, so like you said, it's so intersectional. And if everyone was doing it, that that's where we're going to really see the big difference. I wanted to talk about the champions you use. I mean, you touched on it briefly with people coming into secondary schools to talk about their experiences, but how important are the champions for time to change? And, and what do people have to do if they want to become a champion? Okay, so, um, uh, and I'm really glad you raised this because um, the champions that we have involved in the programme are the absolute lifeblood of the programme. We, we they give us authenticity, they lend us their voices, their stories, they are the absolute heart and soul of Time to Change. So they, um, what we have done uh, in the past is we've said to people, okay, so if you've got personal experience of mental health problems and you want to get in, involved, 
they've signed up and we offer them um, training and support um, and opportunities to, um, to challenge stigma and discrimination. So some of that is coming into universities or schools to talk. It might be influencing employers, it might be influencing government, um, but as importantly, it's also about saying to people, we're going to give you the tools and the um, skills and the confidence, very important, um, to be able to challenge stigma and discrimination in your own lives. And that, particularly for our young champions, is really, really important because for lots of people, they don't want to stand up in front of an audience, but they're quite happy to use social media to kind of change the status quo. So we um, we look to train and empower them. And again, on the website, there's lots of, uh, of really useful tips that people can, um, to, to get, can go and have a look at. Now, in terms of people wanting to become involved in, in, in the programme, we are unfortunately coming to an end on the 31st of March as time to change. So we didn't, we weren't successful in getting future funding. So what we're really hoping to do is to, to really migrate the ambition around stigma and discrimination to our partner charities Mind and Rethink Mental Illness. So there will still be an opportunity for activism, for people to change the status quo based on championing the cause of, uh, of equality for all. Um, and they can do that through, uh, you know, signing up through Mind and Rethink's opportunity um, to make that happen. So, you know, I cannot, I, they are the, the, the people that we work with in terms of our champion group, being able to facilitate that has probably been the most, um, the one thing in my entire career that I am most proud of and that I, I get, I take most solace in, uh, regardless of whether Time to Change is the central programme comes to an end. We've, we've really enabled five, five to 6,000 individuals plus loads of people we don't know about to, to feel confident to change the status quo and that for me is is everything yeah I am so sorry to hear about time for change I mean the fact that your movement that is, is so important and I'm so inspired about what you do um it makes me I mean, not only saddened but angry I mean how can such a great movement not have the support it needs I mean I mean is this a sign that mental health is still not being taken seriously by the government and not getting enough funding um uh, i i think what i can say is that um is that it, it, particularly as we come out of this pandemic i think that we uh, you know lots of people talk about it as, as us experiencing a kind of tsunami of mental health problems and i think that 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 will come down the line what i'm uh, what i'm hopeful about is that we have created a, a movement and in, in, in creating that social movement, we've built legacy into everything that we've done. So we've built legacy into employers continuing to deliver the employer pledge and thinking about mental health and having mentally healthy workplaces. We've built um, a, you know, legacy in terms of passing on to all of those schools the need to say, I can't run my school without having a policy around mental health and stigma and discrimination in the same way I would do in any other setting. You know, and we've worked with the community to be able to get them thinking slightly differently about how they deliver this locally on the ground. And then as we've talked about, our absolute diamond in the crown is the kind of the, the social movement, those supporters and champions who will continue campaigning for years and years and years to come. And that's the legacy that we can leave. So 
it is frustrating um, and uh, and and potentially short-sighted, but I really believe that we have started something now that that is unstoppable, and we just need to encourage people to continue. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, I, I think Time to Change has really set the foundation and has fired the starting gun for the race against mental health stigma. And also the fact that you've worked so much with the communities and encouraged people to take responsibility. You've not just started a campaign, you started a campaign to encourage other people to start campaigns. So on behalf of everyone who is listening and has struggled with mental health, thank you so, so much for all you've done. I just wanted to ask you, um, I know that you have a history with mental health problems. Um, so who was your champion during that time? And, and secondly, um, if you were to give one piece of advice to young people on how best to create a safe space and look after your mental health, what would that, what would you say to them? Two weighted questions for the end of the podcast. I'm so sorry. No, that's absolutely fine. I, I, um, so what a lovely question. Um, I, I, so my experience of, of mental health um, problems actually began when I was in secondary school. So I, um, I, I experienced um, bullying and, uh, and, uh, and that really led to a, a high degree of anxiety, undiagnosed, but a high degree of anxiety and, and, um, and depression. And, uh, and that really set the scene for, the, for, for, for much of my adult life. So my champion, and I hope I don't get upset about this because I do tend to get quite upset about this, but my champion really has been my husband um, uh, of, of, of 23 years who, um, who is, has just been an undying um, support mechanism and has walked this sometimes difficult uh, for him actually uh, as much as for me a uh, difficult journey um, by my side um, and he he's never really tried to fix um, but I do know that even though sometimes my experience makes it very difficult for me to to, to reach out um, I know that every single step of the way he's there sometimes I can't necessarily feel his presence but he's absolutely um, by my side and has been my biggest support um, uh, champion uh, all my life. So um, uh, a big shout out to him. Um, and in terms of people um, going going through stuff now, I, I think um, don't do what I did, which is to held it all in. I felt like I couldn't reach out and I didn't have any right to. And I think what I would encourage people to to young people right now is that you do have the right, you have the right to what you're feeling, you have the right to have that acknowledged and recognised, you have the right to, um, to support when and, and how you need it, um, and really, really reach out. Um, not doing so uh, leads to some pretty dire consequences if left unchecked. So uh, reach out, and if you're a mate, then, then reach out to your mates and just check in and make sure that they're in. The best solution is prevention and the best way to do that is start the conversation. Um, I mean, thank you so much, Joe, for joining me today and sharing your story and spreading awareness about such an important cause. And fingers crossed, you've inspired, I mean, I know you've inspired so many people to start their conversations because like you said, the small things really make a difference. So thank you.
You're very welcome. Even though Time to Change will not be around for that much longer, its legacy will still remain. Time to Talk Day will be delivered in 2022 and they will still be continuing to allow champions, hubs, schools, employers and the community to download their materials from the website. Continuing to use the social media channels as well. Champions can continue to campaign themselves and with the support of Mind and Rethink Mental Illness, Time for Change are currently undertaking a repermissioning exercise for their current champions and supporters so that they have permission for Mind and Rethink Mental Illness to be in contact with them. If you need to reach out to someone, the Samaritans is also a really great place to start. Whatever you're going through, a Samaritan will go through it with you. Call 116-123, that's 116-123, for a free confidential service that's ready to listen to anyone in distress. And remember, let's start talking and make a change.